two, three, four, six, seven, eight. My Diglett's evolving. Let's see what my Pokedex says. Dunge Trio, the Dungeon Master Pokemon. It's capable of hosting multiple role-playing games at the same time due to its three heads. Josh Karam, Trio Trio. Elias Lyle, Squirtle. Seth Lyle, Wabafet. Trio Trio. With my new Pokemon, I'll be the best podcaster in the whole region. Welcome, everybody, to the Dungeons and Gatherers podcast. I am one of your co-hosts here, Aaron Thompson, joined by my lovely friends, Josh Karam, and our two special guests, the Lyle brothers, Elias and Seth. Welcome back, guys. Glad to be here, Aaron. Thanks for deciding you like us enough to have us here. I haven't been back before. Excuse me. Seth, I feel we just talk about you a lot on the podcast. You're you're almost always in our hearts, so I feel as though you're like... Yeah, in the ethos. But it, it's always... Ah, Seth nearly killed us again this week, so uh, thanks for that, Seth. I've never <laughs> killed anybody. Let, let the record show. Deaths in my campaign. Zero. And we're already starting out strong. This is a defense. If you couldn't tell, we're talking about Dungeon Mastery today with three wonderful DMs who I have all um, played with. Yes, I was going to say been played by. <laughs> We've all tricked you. That also works, We've all scammed you. But in like a different way. <laughs> yeah. We know Eli. We know Josh. Seth, tell us about yourself and your history with Dungeons and & Dragons and Dungeon Mastery. I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons since I was like 12 when two of my friends had the books and they were planning out how to play. I've played through uh, terrible campaigns where everybody's godlike powers uh, and imagination of 13-year-olds. I've played horrible campaigns where I've done entire homebrew for class race and all of the above, and now I thankfully play the normal way. I thought he was going to say, uh, now I play terrible campaigns with you, you two or you three idiots. No, I, I've only been stuck with you for the greater part of a decade. <laughs> yes, we win, Aaron. <laughs> Can I ask quickly, Seth, what were some of these classes and races you came up with? Yeah, I want to know too. Oh, so uh, one time I remember, I was like age 12, I played, I, uh, being a cleric wasn't good enough, so I made up a bishop class. Could you only move diagonally? <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was in the rule set. I think I made some sort of anthropomorphic bird because I wanted to fly. Essentially, it was just like, I want this cool thing. I'm going to make up a reason that I have it. And out of the abyss, like, my character dies, can I use one of the races you came up with when you were 13 years old? You'd have to dig it off of whatever computer it was saved on at the ripe young age of 13. I think that's long since dead. Let's get the ball rolling, and I just want to check in with everybody, all of y'all, and talk to me about your transition to being a DM rather than being a player. Because I feel like I've always encountered people, everybody seems to have a preference for one or the other, and I want to know, like, what's so sweet about being a DM? The advantage of being a DM is you can play at any time because you start the game. So if you're like, I'm bored and I want to play Dungeons & Dragons, you don't have to hassle your DM to schedule a meeting. You just schedule it. You're, you're in charge of that. 
So at the end of the day, it comes down to power and control. I think it mostly comes for me down to, I want to play D&D, and if I'm not the DM, who will be? Well, you see, Aaron, mo most people don't have uh, any any degree of control in their day-to-day uh, -day lives, so uh, they have to live vicariously through their uh, DMing. Uh, uh, it gives them a little power over a, a make-believe uh, universe where they are judge jury executioner and god i think that's really interesting too honestly one of the first times that i played dnd actually my second time playing i took the dm mantle for uh minds of fandelver a uh, long long time ago now and it's always funny because it is that like sense of power control and creation and i think if you fall like too far down the dnd rabbit hole because i prefer to dm over play now it's just something you get used to and you're like oh i want to continue creating universes and i don't know if that's because i'm more of a homebrew dm rather than a module dm like i'm obsessed with the idea of constant creation so i think like the dm reason for me is that i just love to constantly be thinking and create and it's even a bigger improv exercise for me so that's my dming point of view i would agree with you too many times you know when you're you're a player and you want like a campaign to go in a different direction or you want to like explore a different thing you're either at like your dm's mercy as to whether or not they want to let you pursue that or the other players like if they want uh, uh to follow along and you know when you're dm you get to uh you know not force your players to do it but uh well you can have two roads that lead to the same place and uh you you gotta kind of get to set the tone and come up with what you want your group to go with. What if you have really willful players, right? Like players that are like, no, I don't want to play that kind of campaign. You know, like have, have any of you ever like really bumped up against like, I really want to take it in this direction. And your whole party is like, but what if we didn't? <laughs> <laughs> That's where the illusion of choice comes in, Aaron. We talked about this last time. No, I get that. So do you ever have full party revolt though? I guess at that point you just stop playing D&D. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, as DM, you shouldn't be enforcing the sort of game your players want to play. I mean, generally, I think the, the advantage and responsibility of DM is to listen. When players say, I want this to be a spaghetti western, I might not know why you're playing Out of the Abyss if you want a spaghetti <laughs> western, but I, I will take five people's creative judgment over my own. Your age and wisdom know no bounds, Seth. No, and that, that's why it like makes sense to have a discussion like with your players before you, you start like if you pick a module or if you want to run a campaign and it's in a completely different setting or a, a tone than your players want to play then no one's going to have a good time if you force them to do something else uh and maybe you won't have fun you know dming for a group like that like the the dm's job is is to have fun uh to to themselves like uh we're not necessarily doing it out of the out of the kindness of our hearts. We want to enjoy and have fun too. So it's all about like finding the group and and talking to them and coming up with the kind of tone that people are okay with playing or want to play. We talked about it. I think I forgot if we talked when you were on Eli. But there's a difference between people who want to write fantasy books and people who want to uh, write D and D campaigns. It's the willingness to know that something might not go to your way and people want something else so that the story could change on the page. Because I find it's always rough having a DM who's like, this is how it's written, and this is the only way it could possibly go. I guess the way I see it is uh, Dungeons & Dragons is just a clunky, rulesy way of five people or however many people coming around the table and telling a story. And I, as an individual, am not a better storyteller. Uh, in fact, I would willing to bet that just by... Um, 
statistical chance, I am probably on a worse storyteller than someone else at the table. So you sort of have to cede that control to let the players tell the story, and you're there to make sure that nobody stampedes on somebody else while they're telling the story, because you've got five other people who want in on it. Yeah, Seth, I have a question for you. Also, I didn't even have to pay you to say collaborative storytelling, um, which is my favorite thing about D&D. What are some tips and tricks that you guys have at the table for, like, getting everybody to have an equal share in what's going on you know like to making sure that like because josh and i were talking earlier today um about being sort of extroverted role players and how that can take a lot of space at the table and i'm just curious what some of your strategies are to prevent people like me from dominating the game personally for me uh i always go with uh, backstory 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 Making sure no one feels like they're forced to be in a situation and their character doesn't vibe with it. That's like one of the worst feelings to have, honestly. So always making sure that why the character is there is clear so that they can at least role play into that. Yeah, I, I like that idea. Uh, it's it's a good way to use backstories because I think when you have a table, there's like, say, five people there's probably going to be one or two people who are more extroverted role players and more into doing that. We've all had the situation when, you know, you have a new player who just doesn't say anything in, in character. So you have to find ways to, you know, prod them into, uh, you know, learning to talk in character and becoming more extroverted uh, in, in assuming that role. Maybe their character is not extroverted, but making sure to agree integrate their backstory, uh, make sure to call on different players, ask what they're doing during certain things. I've liked actually what you've done, uh, Seth, and Out of the Abyss, you know, uh, calling on different people to give a recap each session instead of, uh, um, you know, just doing it yourself as DM because it makes people more involved and invested in the story if they know that they're going to have to remember what happened going forward. It also makes it feel like a pop quiz. Yeah. Um, so you always <laughs> have to be studying. Yeah, That's so right. So recap where we left off. I want to make sure you guys are paying attention. I I'm a big fan of uh, the DM side chat where, like, I don't care if the party splinters. I uh, I am perfectly happy to declare declare that we are splitting a session or someone is handling something in private. Uh, at its most extreme, one time, I was a lawful good Vow of Poverty monk, basically playing out of the Book of Exalted Deeds, who was stuck with an anti-hero party. Everyone was like, oh, what's the gain for me? So what eventually I did is uh, I, had a, I set up a side chat with the GM, and throughout the campaign, I in, instead of taking a Vow of Poverty, I used leadership and had someone else handle the character's funds so that he could start creating the tasks that the party would then unknowingly take, thinking that that was the best treasure. So sort of in that way, subtly remaining lawful good and pushing the party towards his own goals without ever directly having to, like, acknowledge the party. You should have known an early warning sign that you're going to be a DM um, is this game. Because <laughs> you were like, what if I also <laughs> steered the party? But also you can do that in a much smaller way. I mean, you... Uh, uh, you can splinter the party in such a way that if um, one player hasn't had a chance to really shine, to pull out something from their backstory or show off something that they do the best, you can you can splinter the party or let them do something independently so they have that chance. They can say, well, I've been looking for this long-lost uh, uh, artifact that is my father's and I haven't been able to find it yet. And you say, okay, you have a hallway here. You can go down it if you want. What do you do? 
You know, I think it's funny you bring that up because I love I love the idea that you were able to integrate a lawful good character into just like a bunch of anti heroes. But it's the same with you and me, Seth, when um I as Traben want to go off and steal something. Like you allow that opportunity for my character to flow in a, a split moment, which is really nice. And I think Seth you as a DM does that very well, allowing people to have their own individual moments in a separate um, split chat. I can't tell you that everyone's going to like you if you do that, but it's not in my power to say, no, no, the rest of the group isn't with you here. I mean, I'm verging on chaotic evil, so let's be real. It's Seth, fine. by far, one of the most hands-off DMs I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm lazy. I'm lazy fair. I love it. I've actually been uh, uh, trying it and not finding uh, success with that, with that method. In uh, one of the games I'm running right now, I have... Uh, you know, a party of four people on a good day, and two out of those four have um, have secret goals, or at one point had secret goals that the other party uh, did not did not know, and um, those goals sometimes came, you know, directly into into conflict. So rather than just do a, a side chat, which I was finding very very difficult to communicate what I needed over over text while the rest of the game is running around, when these side conversations happen, they're pretty good at not uh, metagaming, knowing that information. So I think it depends on like what your group is is good at role playing. Uh, or what your DM is good at uh, multitasking, because I am not. I, see, I'm always really bad at multiple NPC voices at the same time. If, if you're talking <laughs> to three different people, all of their accents steadily come together until you're talking to one amalgamation. Yeah. <laughs> the single consciousness of three NPCs, that's all it is. They just become the same person. Doug Trio. I have mine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> trio, Trio. It is hard to run, especially multiple side chats during a session. Because I think that there's, there's a very easy thing, and I fall into this as a DM a lot, where you can get into, like, the single-player hero circumstances where you focus too greatly on one character. And then you forget the rest. Because I don't know. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. But sometimes during certain arcs, I'm like, oh, well, this is the hero of this arc. Or this is the main protagonist of the arc that we have in this campaign right now. This one character. In Amira, um, Josh is really great about even if we're in a, a certain character's backstory location, you're going to give other character moments to, like, uh, the other players. So... Even when we were sorting out stuff with Ryan's character, right? Like, there were still character moments that could happen for the rest of us in the party based on the other NPCs that you brought in and just the circumstances you put us under. They, Even though they didn't tie into our backstories, they tied into our character concepts hmm. and gave us things to think about and to interact with in the world. Well, thank you, Aaron. I'm, I'm happy to no hear problem. that I can play it off in some way. So I want to talk about character voices, though, because that's always a hot topic amongst Dungeon Masters. Whether or not to do them, tips and tricks, you know, do you try for accents or does that get just like bad and sort of offensive? In uh, the main campaign I run, Curse of Strahd, everybody has a generic Slovak accent. Even the men, the, the women, even even the non-Barovian uh, uh, people, uh, <laughs> they, all, they all just have the same generic Slavic accent. I try sometimes to, to mix things up, but like you said, Seth, they all just kind of turn into an amalgamation of the same voice after you have more than two talking. I'm terrible at accents. I can't do them whatsoever. I will try and give people different voices, and then any accent I attempt will just come back to bad. Everybody everybody becomes a bad southern accent 
Very Everyone quickly. becomes a southern dandy after a while. Well, I bet you can't. What I try and do is give everybody some sort of mannerism instead. Mm. So, like, uh, I'm playing a angsty drow who just wants to leave. I put on my best Squidward mannerism. Oh, I do <laughs> feel that. Why are we doing that? Your mannerisms are very good. Like, I know when the mushroom is talking because the mushroom is small. Hey, hey the guys. The mushroom has a very small voice. What, what, what's a podcast? Hey, why are, we, why are we recording? There's a mushroom person with oh us. Oh my god, hi, stool. Wait, I thought stools are stools. Stools are enemy now. I thought. I thought he had a, a no. committed heinous crimes against us. That's that's the chaotic evil approach, which I'm with you as well. So yes, I crimes agree. Crimes against Skyrim he did, and her people. He did commit crimes. I think when you brought up mannerisms, it's perfect. Like I do love doing accents. Aaron could know each of my characters usually has some form of an accent. What are the other factors that could always go in? There's age, there's timidness, um, even coming up with a physical tick will affect the voice. What I like to do, if you don't really like doing accents as much, is look at people in your life and find the ticks that they have and just do your best to mimic them. Oh, that's good. I hadn't thought of oh, it yeah. like that before. Or like before. people that like click their tongue before they start speaking all the time. Yeah. You know, they're like gonna tell you something. Like if you're playing a younger character, just like look up a little bit whenever you speak you're so i literally just did <laughs> just remember how closed off you are sometimes and it, it and hesitate a little and it, it kind of works to get that care like just think of anything in any person you see that makes it a little different or something you notice and put that into whatever character you do because that helps change it besides just how many different people could have a southern dandy accent right i hadn't thought of this um earlier but I actually just ran a uh, a, a ten NPC intrigue encounter uh, in in my game, and I think a lot of people when they're you know running like uh, uh, NPCs and things like that, they don't plan necessarily on like what they sound like or what they what they talk like. They just kind of focus on all right, this this is their goals. This is the information that they can offer uh, uh, the players with some prodding, maybe a check somewhere involved there. Uh, but I actually wrote up a an, an encounter sheet for them. Each of the characters had uh, a personality that I had written up, and I tried to put some thought into uh, the voices and, and mannerisms of them beforehand to avoid devolving into the same generic accent for 10 NPCs who were all supposed to be speaking together at a, a, at a dinner. Very cool. I was wondering... So, um, when I read some source books one time for the Dragon Age RPG system... It was cool in some of their pre-made adventures that, like, they'd say, like, this is the list, this is, like, what the NPC will tell you if you ask him these certain questions, right? To sort of, like, build up a personality. And I'm wondering, whenever you guys are doing your prep work, is there a similar system you go through that's, like, here's everything this NPC knows, and here's some potential conversations, and, like, to get, like, vocal quirks or whatever, like, here's some things that this NPC might say when prompted. There's actually a really good guide for this. I don't have a link right in front of me, but it's, like, how to prep a location in 10 minutes or less. It's essentially like write down a listicle uh, first of all the people in the town and all the, or important people in the town and all the locations in the town. And then just write two bullet points about one, the main piece of information they can offer or a secret they have, something like that. Uh, and then maybe what kind of um, relation they have to some other character. And I think that's a good way to just start and get an intro for a location without having to spend, you know, hours uh, planning what, what different things you think your players might do there. 
which we all know they're going to do something different than you planned anyways, so. For Out of the Abyss, uh, since it's, it's like 10 NPCs that just sort of follow the party around, I try and keep in mind uh, sort of an o- overarching personality, which I think we've already talked about, uh, sort of what their secret is, so what, what is it that they're not telling the party, and then I have an idea of how, how they interact with different people in the party. So, for example, we, we were using Stool, the little child mushroom, Stool and Garth hang out together, so if, if Garth is interested, and this comes back to player, player choice, let the players define how, how they want to interact with the NPCs, so if Garth wants to ask Stool questions about, like, uh, Neverlight Grove, I have pretty good answers ready just based on what I know from the source material and Stool's personality. Whereas if Garth tries for the first time to talk to Sarath, the, the drow who's got a whole bunch of secrets, he's just going to be grouchy and tell him nothing. It's about uh, sort of having an idea of how the, play, how the personality interacts with that player and let the player guide what relationship they want with that character moving on. Yeah, that's the step between having a two-dimensional and then bringing it to the third dimension. I like in um, a lot of the modules can remind you of this. Um, in Candlekeep Mysteries, uh, Shamshime's Bedtime Rhyme, for example, there's a character named Ebder, and it's described as Ebder's a very closed-off character, but if you talk about his daughter, he lights up. So as you were saying, Seth, it's important to remember the interactions that allow people to have depth. And I think that's a really important thing to remember while writing a character. You don't want your characters to feel just like quest markers or information boards. They should feel like people that are actually interacting with your characters. And people that will say different things to different people. I think that that's really crucial because it's like... If if Kiva has a conversation with like with Sarath, it comes out a lot different than a conversation that Garth has with Sarath, and I think that that's important. And just saying it like you you name characters, and I think of how Sarath thinks of uh, Kiva, whereas I think of how like I can think of the disdain uh, when thinking of Sarath with Garth. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm flattered that Sarath doesn't hate me the most. <laughs> well. Isn't he dead? Didn't you guys? He is kill dead. Him last he's session? completely dead. Yeah, he's. Completely I killed dead. him. Yeah, so I mean, I'm no. probably on the. Yeah. I mean, he's not totally he's, dead. He's undead now. Oh, New I and forgot. improved, Seraph. I forgot you brought him back. <laughs> Level five. Gonna now so he likes problems. Garth the best. Yeah. We love conflict in a party. It's always fun we to do. play with that. Party conflict always ideal. So we have to wrap up our DM chat soon so we can get to some very exciting other fun bits. Yes. But I just wanted to pull on the wisdom of my Dunge trio um, and ask if you guys, first off, how many TPKs do you have under your belt? And secondly, any tips or tricks you might have for people that are interested in getting started being a DM or maybe like, you know, are new to it? I actually have zero TPKs under my belt, which I'm pretty soft proud of. Uh, I think, like, the classic advice is just look at stories you're inspired by. Get simple D&D modules that you like. Switch out names. Switch out places. Think of the reasons why you like Dungeons & Dragons so much and put it in there. And the biggest thing is don't ever overplan because half of the fun is just living in the world with your players. So don't be afraid to improv. I think that's just the biggest advice I've got. I have never TPK'd uh, a a full-time campaign party. I TPK'd a party uh, where they knew that that was an outcome. They were, like, going through a memory, and they knew that was the outcome. Um, Oh, gotcha. 
So they, they roleplayed that. I In my current campaign, there's been one death, but it was... Uh, he came back. I can't say too much without giving spoilers uh, uh, to, to Curse of Strahd. So aside from that, new DM wanting to uh, DM their first party, I would start off with something simple. It's really easy to get lost trying to plan your own world uh, from the start and do you know, everything, uh, uh, plan a huge history for this world you're in, or uh, these huge complex political relationships, why not just start off with a town and have your players go into that town and they have a conflict that they want to resolve. It doesn't have to be slay the dragon. It can be something simple and engaging and rely on uh, uh, material. Well, maybe not rely, but I think draw on material that's been made by professionals because uh, you know, Wizards of the Coast and other tabletop manufacturers have fantastic writing teams who have put together really well-balanced dungeons and quests and stories that are just great to draw from. So that would be my advice. I've only ever TPK'd one party. Aha! And to be fair, the way I started that session, I said, okay, guys, you were all experienced, and uh, we have had the like tutorial quest for this world. At this point, I take the training wheels off, and the repercussions of what you do lays on you. And then the first thing they did was go storm a huge castle at level one. Ah. Uh, oh. oh. Okay. Oh no, they deserve that. That's that's my point. Uh, I guess sort of the way I view being a dungeon master is whether you're doing it with a book or your homebrew, your goal is to create a playground and let your players go play on it. So once you've built the playground, you're there to watch them have fun and make sure that they're uh, finding everything so that they can play the game they want. If they're a bunch of toddlers and they want to climb up to the top of the playground and then fall off, that's their, that's their prerogative. When you're running a game, try and think of it as, or at least the way I think of it is, you're creating the setting, you're putting in the pieces, you're, put, you're building the slide and the swing set. However the players want to play, once you have a swing set, it's up to them. So you're more of like a facilitator. Right. And from that, they'll tell you what the story is that they want. They'll tell you sort of, they'll, they'll push for the outcome they want for their character and find the equilibrium within the group. Lazy fair. Lazy, but fair. <laughs> <laughs> Eli touched on prep. I know we said we were done, but I just want to know, like, I've heard people say, don't prep for things that people won't get to for a while, right? So like whenever you're prepping your playground, if you anticipate that they're going to want to play on the monkey bars before, you know... The zip line. I don't know why there's a zip line here, but there is. You know, like, do you do you start with the whole playground, or are you allowed to just like piece piece by piece? If you're playing from a book, you should know enough chapters ahead that you know what else is happening simultaneously. So if your players all of a sudden decide they're bored with this subquest and go east, uh, you have to know what's to the east. I have no idea how our module ends. I haven't read the end of the book, but I know enough chapters ahead that if they if my players try and go around and move to something else it's fine in a homebrew the way i sort of see it is have an idea of what's going what's anywhere say you take eli's example you have a town at least you should have an idea of what that town connects to so that if you're playing on the fly you can put something plausible in there so uh when i when i do homebrew worlds what i tend to do is i have a map and i have the major factions or the major players on that map so if, if the players, say, want to go muck around in the port town, I know how they'll get there, I know who is there generally, and I have an idea of sort of what environment that is. And from there, I just let the players define what sort of adventure they say. Can I 
charter a boat. We have the support town. Yeah, you can charter a boat. Can I fly to the moon? This is medieval fantasy. We don't fly to the moon here, but if you find a solution with the tools you have, by all means. Gotcha. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for sharing some of your wisdom. Now for the fun. Yes. There's blood to be paid today because... All right, Josh, even or odd? Even. Alrighty. Our first matchup of the day in our D&D class bracket is as follows. Uh, we are doing the rogue versus the barbarian. Rogue, hands down. Yeah, no, that's an easy one, rogue. Now, as my junior year English teacher, Melissa Moore, would say, support. Rogues have good DPS, pretty good sustain in combat because of as long as you pick one of the fighting ones, like uh, swashbucklers can take all these evasion skills and stuff so that they can reduce the damage they're taking. They're never going to be as you know tough as a barbarian but they make up with it because they have so much utility outside of combat, whereas I feel like barbarians have much less. Rogues are so much more fun to roleplay, too. You can be the jack-of-all-trades, you can be the charming one who comes into the inn and uh, uh, wins over the town, you can be the silent assassin type. Are you sure you're not just describing a bard? I, actually, I'd like to change my answer. Bard yeah. is... <laughs> Alright, one vote for bard, then. Oh. <laughs> just want to check, yeah. An another vote for Bard, sure. You want to rob the princess? Rogue's your character. You want to seduce the dragon? Rogue's your prince. Your your your. Rogue class. is your princess. <laughs> we're really we're really drawing a line between Bard. We're not allowing Bard to have another spot in this tournament. I'm sorry, everyone. Bard. No, there's no losers bracket here. I I would like to point out that the dragon probably took levels in Bard, and that's why he has the princess to begin with. <sighs> mm. Maybe the princess wants to be with the Bard. No. With the dragon. Help me. Oh, God. Uh, you know, speaking of things that aren't bards, um, I will also vote for the rogue. I've been trying to, like, come up with rationales this week why the barbarian would win. And every time I was like, oh, it deals a lot of damage. I'm like, but the rogue does, too. And, like, the barbarians can take a lot of hits, but the rogue is able to avoid so many things. It's, like, it's hard to get a hit on a rogue sometimes. So... Everything I think about, and also the class from a role-playing utility standpoint, the rogue is just so much more fun. Because the barbarian has a couple of notes from the beginning. The rogue has so many. Yeah, my only thought about the barbarian was that um, depending on what subclass you have, you can you get access to like ritual casting a few spells, which can be pretty cool. But, you know, so like from like an out-of-combat thing, having that option. The best way that a barbarian can support somebody is is truly just by existing and taking hits, right? Sort of in the same way that a fighter does. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, eat shit, Snorri. Um, Damn, that's a call-out. This is the long-awaited fight between me and Elisa. I was going to say, Elisa's literally said you've called her out once. Now it's twice? This is this is getting rough. I love Elisa so much. Oh, she we'll knows see when this. Elisa's on the podcast. We'll see what happens. Well, yeah, we'll have to see. She'll come on and she'll just cold cock me. So let's go rogues. What? So way to go rogue, advancing to the next round. Now let's see who in the spellcasting bracket will be advancing to the next round to fight the wizard um wisdom has prevailed and it was so close but the druid has won out and will be going on to the next round over the cleric yes sorry josh it it hurts but it was a very close fight and that's that's all that matters the, the mm -hmm. cleric tried Truly. but it, it just wasn't his game it just wasn't his game this time in our next bracket we've got the warlock versus the sorcerer we're having a charisma showdown i'm casting my vote Haha, <laughs> sorry. I'm casting Whoa. my vote for the sorcerer. I have to. I've never played either in 5e, so I'm going to wait and see and cast the the uh, 
final vote. I thematically love Warlocks, but every time I play it, I'm asking myself what I'm supposed to be doing. So I, I have to go Sorcerer. So because I'm like, you know, sometimes chaotic evil, I'm tempted to pick Warlock just for the purpose that there's like a little bit of suspense. Like, oh, what's going to happen? I... I hate to be, like, so blunt, but, like, when I play a warlock, I love it. I love everything behind it. But there are times where I truly feel that feeling of I'm really dancing around, like, so many things that I can do, but they're not perfect. Like, spell casting, I hit the end of the road really soon. Like, fun little tricks up my sleeve. Like, I got two, and then I'm out to doing normal things. I feel as though the Sorcerer has a longer game plan for the tricks that it can do compared to the Warlock. Would you say that the Sorcerer outscales the Warlock? I would say yes. I read once in a guide that Warlocks are really strong and their abilities are really powerful if you can really plan how you want to use them and get really creative with it. Mm -hmm. I feel like... That's probably true, but for the the 50% of the scenarios where you can't be really creative with how you use your two spells, you're pretty much either a worse rogue, worse sorcerer, or worse fighter. I've also heard that um, the warlock is very dependent on getting your short rests in in a day. 100%. And I've just never played in a in a campaign that has taken a lot of short rests. I mean, people say the same thing about me. Do you need a lot of short rests in a day? <laughs> Listen, I'm only good if I get three short rests. Seth only gets two spells a day, so he really has yeah. to Yeah, how many of then. your abilities recharge on a short rest? Is it all of them? I can make a, another pot of tea if I just have a short rest. Oh, all right, I that's a good, that. that's that's a good feat. Me. That gives you a lot of temporary hit points right there. And also, I've I've played both a Sorcerer and a Warlock, and I've had more fun playing the Sorcerer. I think the RP standpoint of the Warlock I'm playing currently is one of my favorite characters to play, but when it comes to just the class itself, the Sorcerer, I think, is better. I'm so proud. If I'm there was so an happy. RP category, honorable mention to Warlock, but Sorcerer wins, in my opinion. So just to put the stats out there, um, the Sorcerer's damage output is um, insane in the membrane some of the best of any of the full casters um they also get some really cool support spells because their spell list is so big and meta magic is a really great way to amplify and sort of mess around with your support spells so that like you can cast slow on your whole party and if you use careful spell then like you don't they don't have to you don't have to worry about slowing down your allies right and everybody loves twinned haste so oh, totally i'm gonna cast my lot in with the sorcerer as well warlock gets an honorable mention i think for some cool roleplay stuff like who doesn't want to form a uh pact with a chithulu monster but um <laughs> but sorcerer i think just has more utility it can be fun to roleplay i see good opportunities there the one thing that i think dinks the uh sorcerer a little bit is i know in fifth edition they've tried to uh differentiate it more from the wizard but i think it still suffers a little bit in uh uh they have a very similar spell list, and a lot of people, when they think of the two, they're like, what's the difference? Eli, why would you want to make a pact with a Chitulu monster when you could instead share a pact with a Dajini? That's honestly one of the most fun packs. I, I much prefer the Archfey. Oh, but we talked about it on Tasha. I think the Genie pact is really exciting. The Genie is really cool. It's a really cool pact. Also, Seth, your, your Genie warlock was hysterical. Um, we played in a one-shot together where you were that, and it was quite fun. Mostly, I just want to see him uh, uh, hiding in his lamp against the djinn he stole his powers from and ran away. Oh, yeah. I want to give Warlock one little point. Armor-wise, as well, for a Warlock, they can take quite oh, yeah. a few hits, and they do work well as melee characters as well. 
So if we need to give Warlock a couple extra points, that's it. But still, mm-hmm. Sorcerer. Yeah, true. From the and th- since they're both charisma, both of them could work can work as a party face incredibly well. Yeah. So there's not a lot to be gained there, and the Sorcerers get a lot of really cool ribbons, um, for like being able to control the weather or like light objects on fire just like for free you know just like as out of combat cool rp things so wow do we, we don't have a tie this week no tie we were able well we had friends on and we were able to make we did we had the unanimous decisions justices. yeah for rogue and sorcerer two classes that i am actively playing right now well done aaron you won. Thank you. Aaron is the winner of this tournament. I will be the winner. Uh, so far, I, all of my favorite classes are still in the running, except for Cleric. I also love Cleric, and it just Thank didn't you. make it. Thank you, Aaron. I just yeah, need to hear that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we're moving on to round two for next week. This will be really fun. Oh my gosh, it's Bard with a chair. <laughs> with a steel chair. What if there's like a, like a, I don't know, it's like a Survivor Total Drama Island thing where like the fan favorite comes back one more time. Redemption Island. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we hear enough noise for the Bard, we'll bring it back. This podcast brought to you by Bards. Dad, my party's really boring. Well, son, have you tried bards? <gasps> Isn't that witchcraft? Wow. It's so much more fun now. Thanks. Inspired. Inspired. Wow, this is a really big plug on the podcast. All right, thank you to our sponsors, The Bard. Um, Josh, you ready to take us out? Well, I'm really happy that we had a great DM talk. And the important thing to remember, everyone, is that you don't need to talk to your DM to like and subscribe to the Dungeons & Gatherers podcast. Mm-hmm.